I didn't know if Chris Columbus had left Christmas Vacation because he fought with Chevy Chase until the Wikipedia of this movie. Dude, there is not a person in movies that <laughs> that didn't fight with Chevy Chase. Like John he seems Carpenter, like a really bad guy. Like <laughs> John John Carpenter, who directed Memoirs of an Invisible Man, has said that Chevy Chase it was the worst mo- experience of his life, and it was solely because of Chevy Chase that he was <laughs> that Chevy Chase was one of the most awful people he ever had, had ever met in his life. Well, that's like Dan Harmon too, right? He got he got him fired from Community. Community. Yeah. Yeah. And when people say that over and over and over, and it's coming from so many different sources, you know, there's got to be some truth to it. And the people saying it are all completely different types of people. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about John John Carpenter, who's worked with Kurt Russell, who's worked with Ice Cube, who's worked with. I mean, Carpenter up until the time that he quit had worked with pretty much everyone there was to work with. And to be like, Chevy Chase is the worst. <laughs> you know, like he but, must be the worst. Like I cannot fucking imagine. Like, I, and it's just because what? Because he was hot for like three years in the mid seventies. He's like still an asshole to everyone because of that. No, it's because like I don't think that people recognize that. Like, uh, yes, it's it's because of that. But also, like when you are an actor, you are pampered so heavily. And there are some people that who who that goes to their head right away, and they can't help but immediately be like, "Well, I'm the shit." And anybody that any anything that anybody else says like has to be wrong, you know. And it's like yeah. that's also born out of an intense insecurity that they had beforehand. I mean, it's like real deep insecurity. There's a reason that Chevy Chase in his later years is like addicted to pain pills and is like mean in a different in a different way. I think he's just like a deeply insecure flawed human being <laughs> i don't mean to laugh but it was just so well you really wow like get him like you really went for him on those like and then you keep in mind that chris columbus so when he was working on christmas vacation he was only like 30 and yeah, he crazy. was 32 when he finished home alone which just blows my mind I'm, th- I'm 34 now and it's like i i i can't imagine he, you know just the level of skill that takes that goes into actually making a movie like this we all talk about orson welles being 26 making citizen kane of course that's the ultimate example but but honestly honestly <laughs> oh being 32 and directing home alone i think is is, is quite an achievement Christian, in its own right i mean i'm not gonna is, argue with you is, i'm not gonna is, argue with is, you is home alone the citizen kane of family movies When the McAllister family left on their Christmas vacation... Did we miss the flight? No, you just made it. They forgot one small thing. Have yourself... I've had a terrible feeling. Did you lock up? Yeah. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm Mm-hmm. What else could we be forgetting? Our troubles will be ours. Kevin! Ah! Home Alone. My question about the impact of Home Alone is not necessarily like the obvious impact of like, you know, there were multiple sequels and sure. and Macaulay Culkin's career or, or, or whatever. But 
was I may I could be wrong, but was Home Alone the first sort of pop cult iconic pop culture moment of the child being absolutely without a doubt right the entire yeah. movie? Yeah. Right? Like after that, like every Nickelodeon show, every ABC family show, every aspect of kids' culture is like the parents, the adults are absolute dickwads who hate me, and I am right the whole time. You know, adults are to be feared and maybe out to get you. Yes. Honestly, I don't like. I don't think J.K. Rowling has ever explicitly said that Home Alone was a key influence on Harry Potter. But I don't see how you get Harry Potter, any of those books, or the just the very concept of it without Home Alone. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about it because obviously they're both Christmas Columbus movies sure. and they both have John Williams scores and listening to the beginning of Home Alone, I, it reminded me a lot of Harry Potter. So I was thinking about this the entire time. Like, I totally agree. I mean, certainly the film Harry Potter could not exist without Home Alone. It's It takes so, it has that same kind of magical feeling in the beginning, you know? Like, I, I think, yeah. but, it, but it's in this everyday life in Home Alone, which makes it like so much better. Like it I, makes it so much better. I mean, that's the thing. I think, you know, you, the original Home Alone just turned 30 the other day. And it holds up in a way that, like, the first two Harry Potter films that Chris Columbus directed, you know, I mean, those films seem dated years ago. But Home Alone still feels fresh. It still feels like, actually, this this has real bite to it. It has a real edge. Um, okay, well, a real we're... Menace. We're, 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 we're clearly already in it. We have a lot to say. Um, uh, this is 30 years later. Uh, it's me, Ricky Camilleri and Chris Chafin. And we are joined by Christian Blavelt, who's the managing editor of IndieWire. And we are talking about Home Alone, Chris Columbus and John Hughes's, John Hughes's Hughes Home Alone from 30 years ago this week, starring Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara, uh, John, is it Hurt? What is, is it, John? What is I John? Think it's just it's not John Hurt. Hurt. I think John Hurt. Yeah. John Hurt is from Alien and, and all the Beckett yes. stuff and the incredible actor John Hurt, who's also an uh, rest in peace, an incredible actor himself. Um, from 1990, the absolute classic um, from that period of time. But also, to be perfectly honest, the, the period of time where I feel like it was hard not to be minted as a classic movie. <laughs> At this point, we've reached this moment in like doing this podcast where it feels like every other movie has become a classic because it was made at a time when movies were appropriately budgeted and like, <laughs> could become a myth of themselves very yes. quickly. Like Home Alone, actually, like the story that I read on Home Alone that's on the Wikipedia, which is that like John Hughes wanted uh, a certain budget. And that budget was, um, excuse me, uh, that, that budget Well, the was, studio wanted to keep it to 10, I think, right? Yes, the studio wanted to keep it to 10. He wanted it to be more than that. Eventually, like when it became in turnaround because they were going to go over budget and he brought it to Fox, which is a secret thing he was already working on. Very hush-hush, very... Hush-hush uh, Hollywood. Very, very behind the back. The final budget was $18 million dollars. $18 million wow. in 1990 is at least double that oh, now yeah. oh, in yeah. terms of what it would get you. And, uh, and normally like every if... fucking movie that we have watched from this period of time, that shows. Yeah. Like they all look 
amazing they and do. look like and and have craft like locations like how many locations does this movie have you know like yes dude the church scene alone where he walks into the church probably took four days to shoot yeah. Oh my god! Right? And it's, it, it could so easily just not be in the movie at all. I feel like it, if if this movie were made today, this is one of the scenes that would not have made it into the movie. Right? And They'd be like, what a know, loss instead that of shooting be. in a church, instead of shooting in a church, maybe he just walks by the guy's house and he's listening to church hymns in the house because they're next door neighbors, right? So in. it's like it yeah. it makes sense for them to see each other just in the yard between the houses. Yeah. Like seeing each other in we... church, like, oh, I don't know. But like, can we talk about how much that adds to the movie at so that moment? Much. That oh my God, right. he he wa- it becomes something mythic and beautiful and so much more and elevated above a children's movie. I ended up even as an adult, like Chris, I was texting you while I was watching the movie. I cried when this old man <laughs> showed up in the movie so... because it's like a actual beautiful moment that the movie takes time to develop and give. Give, give give over to and, and it is such a meaty scene it's about five minutes and yeah. it's just about these two people at such different points in their lives we've got eight-year-old kevin McAllister and then 70 something uh robert's blossom here old man marley uh you know bonding over the fact that they're both alone at christmas and i think that's one of the things that I, for me that scene makes the movie that's the scene that makes this from you know turns this from a very good movie to actually just a great movie because how many can you think of like any other because i mean every adult at some point in their life has experienced sadness or melancholy depression at the holidays you know whatever holiday you celebrate you know maybe you're not with your family uh maybe you know something has happened in your life and you know when do you ever see a kid channeling that emotion channeling that adult mature level of of emotion and he is he is channeling that here which i think is a testament to macaulay culkin's acting but also just to the writing which apparently this entire scene that we're talking about was invented by chris columbus uh was not in john hughes original script it's so interesting that you mentioned that because i i did i was looking this up too and like knowing that it's a John Hughes script that Chris Columbus inserted some stuff into, I just assumed he would have inserted the hacky, stupid things into the movie, but he inserted the really touching, like serious storyline with the lonely neighbor, which I I was really impressed by. And like, it was amazing. It's well, also that scene, um, that, that it's not just like that. It's a storyline with the lonely neighbor, but like anybody who's ever like fought, any son, I think, I mean, I have a oh, personal yeah. relationship with this, but like any son who's ever like fought with their father in a mm-hmm. generational way and felt kind of like, are we ever going to talk again? Like, how is this? Why is this fight so escalated and so wild, you know, because we're father and son. I mean, that scene and that relationship that is so brief, like really captures that and feels maybe just to me, but it feels very personal. Like it's the one moment that somebody had something deep to say within the yeah. movie. And that's not and to it, say that other elements of the movie don't have that, but that's the moment that like, like you said, it's like, it's a fine movie. And then all of a sudden there's some sort of weird core 
that 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 cuts into that is unexpected and it's so weird too because functionally in the movie because this this scene it's two-thirds of the way through the movie it's basically the last thing that happens before kevin fights the wet bandits so like functionally in the movie it's kind of like psyching him up to do battle but in this like very weird (laughs) like emotional way where he's like protecting his home or something like another movie would have had him get some kind of weird speech from the gym coach or something you know but in this movie it's it's very touching (laughs) humanistic scene in a church while a children's choir is singing and and i just love the accent of that actor who's playing the old man like his listening to his voice it's like so beautiful so good you're you're absolutely right. Like that would have been a scene that would have been like him being like, well, you have to defend your house. You have to yeah. defend your family. It would have only been set up for the next moment to come rather than its own subplot storyline, because there would have been development people or other people, other people have been like, we don't need this. If it's not, you it's know, not moving the story. Along. It's not moving the story. It's not the, along. We it's move not the story main story. Yeah. And I and I have to say, like, as a person who watched Home Alone last night, who watched Dances with Wolves last week, who watched Judgment Night just for fun the other day, <laughs> and watches 90 movies, 90s movies on a regular basis, I, I hate to say it, but like like movies just don't feel like they really exist now when you watch stuff like this. It's true because a scene like this, what we're talking about, you know, would it exist in a film today? Because films no, today never, are never. so much about plot they're about plot over theme and what we're talking about here is that this scene is about theme over plot you know yeah. and, and characters and character yeah. development of like such a minor weird character that doesn't really seem central to the film it's, it's a, the easiest thing in the world to cut out you would never miss it but like you were saying it adds so much having it it just makes the world feel rich and i think there's so many moments like this in home alone where it's like they just have something that doesn't really need to be there but adds a lot where it's like so you see kevin walking in the grocery store it's funny he's you know the woman's giving a hard time about where are your parents and he's being cute but then it shows him like walking back with his groceries and then like the bottom falls out of the bag and he's like mm-hmm, which is like kind of a dumb joke but it's also kind of like it's telling you how he got to and from the grocery store. And it's showing him at the beginning where he's just like having a nice moment walking down the street and he's feeling really good about having got all these groceries for himself. And it's just like, and right, it ends with this dumb joke where the bag breaks, but it's like, that's just adds some, I thought it was great and cute and it just adds the reality of it. And there's a million touches like that that would just never, never be in the version of this movie from today. And all of those well, elements really make organic sense to the story too like in the earlier yes. scene when he goes to the drugstore and he wants to get the the toothbrush that he ultimately steals and he has a great moment where he says i'm a criminal <laughs> now, uh, but that moment is like all right why doesn't he have a toothbrush oh because his parents already packed it and it's on its way to paris you know, because exactly. he was supposed to be on that flight. So he doesn't have a toothbrush. He needs to get a toothbrush. And like, I love the way that like he immediately, we see him sleeping in his parents' bed, you know. when, no, and when it's so has, sad. Because oh. that's exactly what a kid would do. I would totally like, you know, sleep in my parents' bed. If and the way that house. it changes emotionally through the movie, because at first he's jumping on the bed eating popcorn, but by the end of the movie, he's like snuggled under the covers, missing his parents. And he's got the TV really close and he looks really, the bed looks huge and he looks so tiny. And like to have that motion just in, the way that like his parents bed is portrayed you know it's amazing i want to i want i i want to backtrack to what would normally be the beginning of the podcast where we talk about like you know how old were you when you saw this and what would it, <laughs> what what it was like but 
I, I am I am compelled by a sort of big question in regards to movies at this time and movies now. Uh, once again, I feel like I've hit it already a couple times, but I'm going to try one more time to really fucking hit it. Out Ricky, do you think movies times. today are? Do you think they make them like this anymore? No, <laughs> no, I don't. But but the question is that like I feel like we are starved for iconic moments in movies at this point yes. or cultural yeah. touchstones, yes, which we don't, we just don't have anymore. We don't have, you know, the Kevin slapping in his face and going, ah, because of the cologne anymore. We just don't have these cultural touchstones that become iconic moments. We talk about for years anymore. And I wonder if that's because of this, I, this, what we're talking about already, which is that like, there's no story in movies anymore. There's only plot. There's only like the stringy, the, 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 like we, even we think about like the most successful small budget movie in the last few years has been get out, right? Get out. Great movie. But was there an iconic moment from get out? I mean, I guess there's the moment where he says, you know, I would have voted for Obama, Obama for a third time. But outside of that, is there like a series of iconic moments that the story builds up and we hold on to and becomes cultural touchstones? And I'm just using that movie as one example. Like we can think of other movies that, you know, have been lauded and beloved by people who like movies, but I don't know. Let alone having a moment like that captured in a singular image that's that stays with you yeah and and i think that's that is one thing with get out that i i don't think there's any one image necessarily that i mean maybe the sunken place the teacup man the the sunken place maybe uh, maybe but uh, but it's not it's not on the same level it's definitely not it's not on the same right i mean obviously get out and home alone are weird things to like compare to each other (laughs) but the purpose the, the purpose of the comparison is like I'm trying to I'm racking my head for move for some kind of cultural touchstone that is ubiquitous and 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 unanimous amongst the culture that I could yeah. go into Ohio yeah, or I mean, Iowa as a New Yorker and be like, hey guys, remember this? Well, ah, my cologne. I and guess like, it's I like think it would it just be things that are gifts. Like speaking of, I would have voted for Obama three times. Like those are cult- cultural touchstones now. Like Jim looking at camera and. Right. Um, God, I don't know. Like, what are the gifts? Now I can't think of any, but you know, like every reaction gift that's like from The Office or from King of the Hill or whatever. Yeah. That's what culture is now, (laughs) you know? Like, and I feel, well, I feel like this whole thing we're talking about, there's no, there's no iconic moments that bring us together. I mean, I agree it's because films are made in a different way, but it's also just the media landscape is so different. They're used to, like, this was the family movie for the fall of 1990, and there was only three channels, and, like, that was it. Do you know what I mean? So it's, like, everybody saw the same things, and everybody saw, and there was only one thing to sponsor, like, Pizza Hut meals and, you know, uh, the Book It program and all this stuff. So it was just, like, something could very easily become, like, a monolithic part of culture. Whereas today, there's just too many competing things all the time, you know. Right. Yeah, I I I, I, I agree with that. But I also think that there, within that monolithic culture, there there are things that like rise close to the surface that a smaller group of people think is ubiquitous, but is never, but is is not actually ubiquitous. Like Emily in Paris, or like <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> The world's most popular TV show, Emily the in Paris. Most popular TV show. 
Um, so Christian, um, it's 1990. You are how old in 1990? I was four. You were four. Okay. Uh, and Het, did you see Home Alone at four years old, or was it years so later when you saw Home Alone? Here's the deal. I am not entirely certain. I I personally believe that I did see it in the theater when I was four because my parents actually did take me to see movies that were, you know, maybe a little scary or had a little menace to them from a pretty early age. But and I definitely saw Home Alone two in the theater when I was six. Mm-hmm. I definitely saw that. Dude, but, there's a great cameo in that movie by somebody that I just love. Oh, I wonder <laughs> who it could be. I went, <laughs> He's like a New York guy. He's kind of into real estate. I forget his name. Developer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I know. I seriously, I think there would be a market for having like a cut of that movie that just like takes him out of it completely. <laughs> there would be there would people would actually buy that. I, 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 you know? I yes, I would. I would for sure. <laughs> Who are you talking about? Oh, Donald Trump. As I said, as I asked that question out loud, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I get I know what you're talking about now. Sorry. That's a fascinating thing because apparently he really like shoehorned his way into that movie. Like because right, they were just using his like his the plaza as a location and he owned the plaza at the time, yeah, I think. Yeah. Right. And so, but so he demanded to be in the movie, basically. basically. Yeah, he did that. He did that all the time. Like he, that was that was his thing. Like if you were going to shoot in the plaza, he demanded a cameo, and I think he demanded a cameo in King of New York, which we talked about earlier, like a few weeks ago, and they just said no. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wait! You mean Abel Ferrara like, was it a yeah, dick to a- someone? A- like... Abel Ferrara was like Abel Ferrara was like you know on a speedball and was like fuck no you fat fuck get the fuck out oh. of here. Abel Ferrara has no time for Donald Trump. He is all the better for it. <laughs> but so you so but see, I, Christian, are you like me? Like I don't really know the first time I saw this movie. I really yeah. couldn't say. It just has no. like entered my consciousness. It's existed my entire life. Exactly. Know? Exactly. It's always, it's always yeah. been there. It's always been there. Even though I was eight, I would have been eight when this movie came out, which is not young, like super young. Like I remember going to see Batman in 1989, for example, in the movie theater. But this movie, it just like exists. It just is eternal, you know? I think part of it My- too was that it was a, a Thanksgiving tradition in the 90s. Every year during the 90s, some channel, maybe it was Fox, uh, put it on. I think it was Fox, actually, since it's a 20th Century Fox film. Uh, put it on Thanksgiving night, like every single year. And and so in that regard, it kind of became a tradition, like even if, like, so when you were done with your meal, maybe you would turn on to see what's on TV or whatever. And, it, you know, maybe you wouldn't see it from the beginning, but, you know, you would, there's Home Alone. And then it, it became sort of this traditional thing. And and it's funny because it's even think of that, because even that seems so quaint, because it's like the idea yeah, right. of like any one show, of any one movie being like, oh, this is what you watch on this day, you know? when when did that stop you know i mean it's been a long time well that i mean that that's a thing that i think that we talk about all the time chris and i think about all the time as well which is that like it feels like at a certain point monoculture and in that regard culture stopped yeah and home alone is one is is in some ways the home alone and home alone 2 are some of the last uh, like relics of uh, uh, of that period. No, I think there's still there's still a bunch of stuff from the '90s. I think that enters into monoculture, like Con Air. You know, is one of these things. Yeah, uh, f- I mean, 
face off a little bit maybe no i mean that's still like a fairly oh um what's it uh, like the what prison movie with tim robbins what's that movie shawshank yes shawshank, shawshank redemption yeah yeah, yeah. And using that the has suspects a lot, that has a, shawshank has a lot to do with tnt yeah, definitely. And like, and definitely, or TBS, definitely. whichever one of yeah. those that showed it on Marathon for like t- seven years at a time. Well, you can, can I say something, Christian? This is like something I was thinking about. So, Home Alone is like a Christmas movie. Like from the first second, it's Christmas yeah. trees, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas the whole time. Okay, it came out like we're saying November sixteenth. So it came out like around Thanksgiving, and like you're saying, they used to put it on TV at Thanksgiving. Like what the honest fuck? Like it could not be more blatantly a Christmas movie. Like I I don't understand this at all. I mean, does do either of you have any insight into this? I think it's partly just the general blurring in our culture that has been going on for so long now. I mean, maybe back to the original Miracle on 34th Street uh, from the 40s, you know, where like Thanksgiving and Christmas kind of blur together in a way like Miracle on 34th Street actually takes place. You know, it starts out on Thanksgiving. It's about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and it just goes from there. Um, But everyone thinks of that as a Christmas movie, too. That's true. Yeah, it's just like the holiday season. I had this discussion with Brian Lufkin. You remember Brian, right? Of course. From BBC. He yeah. was saying he was saying like, is Thanksgiving a part of the holiday season? And he his opinion was no, because it's like he means the Christmas season, which starts after Thanksgiving. And I was like, bro, Thanksgiving is also a holiday. Like yeah, it is the holiday yeah. season. You know, it just is. It's all wrapped up together. No, but it, I yeah. I love Brian to death, and you should have him on the show. By the way, he would be a God, great Brian, commentator. Yeah. He'd be amazing. Never. Brad. but but i have to disagree no i think thanksgiving is is clearly a part of of the holiday season in that way and um you know it's it's a funny thing i mean it is such it it is a christmas movie and it has all the trappings of the season and it really does have great ambience and great you know neighborhood atmosphere real mood and yet there is this you know undercurrent of of menace that i think is there from the very beginning yes the very first shot of the film is the beautiful home uh this is winnetka illinois this adorable uh suburb north of chicago and uh where every john hughes movie takes place basically and but then the second shot is a sinister guy dressed uh as a police officer posing as a police officer already in the home trying to case the joint and that's joe pesci his character harry he's posing as a police officer he's already inside the home like the primordial violation here of the sanctity of the home has already occurred there is no safety here this was one of the things i actually forgot about this movie i mean i think rewatching it was an experience of remembering how much of it i didn't remember at all but the fact like you're saying like it's so menacing that joe pesci is in there and he's in the house for a long time (laughs) he's trying to get someone's attention so he can like rob them later which is like extremely ballsy like they're the world's (laughs) ballsiest criminals because he's standing in their house for like 45 minutes being like hey you when are you leaving are you still are you staying around what kind of security system do you got and uh but everybody's just having such a good time at christmas they're not even thinking about it the dad is like you want some eggnog come on (laughs) But actually oh go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say speaking of this this like crazy holiday atmosphere that's going on in the house there's like 45 children in this like 10 million dollar house in chicago like running around and there's this beautiful john williams like basically harry potter music playing but with a little kind of danny elfman christmas thing happening and um 
it, it creates this holiday atmosphere so effortlessly and so totally. It was, and I don't know if it's just because, you know, I was a child when this movie came out or whatever, but it just, it was so comforting to me from the very first second, like just hearing the music, looking at Christmas lights, like seeing a family running around. And I just thought it like so well created this like suburban holiday atmosphere that so many movies like try to create but really can't it's just something about the chaos and the way that it's like unremarked upon and it's just everything's just happening when you get there and it didn't the feel stagey movie, you know the the top of the movie the top like the absolute top of the movie the credit sequence feels very tim burton yeah uh, danny elfman and then yeah. i was kind of like and then it finished and i was like okay maybe that's influenced by them but also maybe it's just 1990 and everybody's kind of doing things and influenced by each other and like this is what you can do when you have a lot of money because then it like just drops into a, a movie with kids running around this this big house that feels like a john hughes movie like right off the top like that john hughes kind of like where he was like i'm gonna give internal monologue and 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 deep thoughts to teenagers that have never been given before now i'm going to give it to eight-year-olds <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> which is like very very weird <laughs> like because you're going from him doing like breakfast club and pretty in pink and 16 candles and then all of a sudden like macaulay culkin is in his head and being like why doesn't anyone like me yeah. <laughs> strange I'm doing my best and I wish they'd all just go away. And it's like, how did this weirdo tap into these? Like, and why did he just keep going younger? What was happening? With him? I guess it's almost kind of like what happened with George Lucas in a way, you know, at first in his case, identifying with the teenage hero and Luke Skywalker. And then when he became a dad himself, then identifying with a much younger hero you know with jake lloyd and, and, and anakin and phantom menace i think it's kind of like that because john hughes I, I assume at least he you know he was like 39 40 when he wrote this and so for his earlier films you know uh, the breakfast club ferris bueller all of those on some level he still had to be channeling his own experience of being a teenager but the fact was you know during that time he was a, a dad as well and by the time that he wrote home alone you know, he must have had kids who were, you know, like seven or eight years old, like almost the age of Kevin McAllister. And uh, and then it was like he must have like his point of view shifted. He wasn't thinking about himself and his own experiences. He was thinking about their experiences at that point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, and it is I think this is part of why it's such a, an enduring movie is like as a kid watching it, you feel very taken seriously you know you feel like you're really seen in a way you don't feel seen by a lot of kids movies i mean it's interesting because we did on this show a movie that also came out in 1990 which is problem child which is like in this way it's like from a studio executive's point of view it's like the same movie do you know what i mean it's like precocious kid like beats up a bunch of people and he's kind of a rascal but you love him but like it, it's so completely different of a film, you know. This Home Alone is so much more serious and so much more well done, and Problem Child is such an no. absolute piece of shit, you know. No, <laughs> Problem Child's a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will I will defend Problem Child against Home Alone <laughs> any fucking day of the week. Problem Ricky, you... Child is like the John Waters 
Children's oh yeah movie. oh yeah against, ricky has this whole theory the that problem up. child is this transgressive like piece of subversive <laughs> art which is it is it is it absolutely and the thing about home alone is that it influenced a decade's worth of terrible oh, family yeah. Oh, yeah. comedy and television shows problem child influenced nothing it was just a transgressive <laughs> nightmare that got shuffled away <laughs> with the exception, exception of a sequel. So on that level, Problem Child, a better movie than Home Alone. The fact that it had the decency to go away. That's... The fact that it had the decency to not influence like a bunch oh of, God. like, you know, Nirvana's in like children's <laughs> movies equivalent. Oh my god, <laughs> so incredible! Uh, I mean, I was thinking about yeah. that because there's so many of these. You got like Camp Nowhere, Man of the House, First Kid, Blank yeah. Check, um, and then that was the end of the list that I thought of. I, but, I um, saw a lot of those. Yeah, my mom did take me to a lot of those as a kid, and 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 I'm, I'm happy to say that even as a kid, I knew that they were all terrible. Like like you know, it's like some of these things like. I, I'm so proud of myself. Like when I was seven, like when she took me to see Hocus Pocus, like even then I knew that was terrible. <laughs> and I, I, like, I can't get over like how it's become like this whole like cult film, you know? I know, I was going to say, like, Christian, you're not allowed to say that. Don't you I know you're not, not allowed to say that? <laughs> no, because it's become like this cherished, you know, classic at this point. It's like, really? You know? yeah, it sucks. It sucks. You know, it's, it's, know. it's pretty bad. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a shame that it did. But I mean, that is a testament to just how successful this movie was. And, oh but, God, and, but, you know, the thing is like, you can't, you can't replicate this though. When you have like Catherine O'Hara and Joe Pesci, I mean, Catherine O'Hara and John Candy, like supposedly John improv John together, you know, like Candy <laughs> yeah. and John fucking Candy. I am sorry. <laughs> I hate to be like wild about this, but as an adult, the best part of the movie the only really funny part of the movie for me last night was John Candy. Everything else was like, he's so good. Was like, sure. If I had a kid, this would be fine. I'm sure my kid would enjoy this. That's very nice. But John Candy shows up and he does these insanely silly improvisations. Polka, polka, polka. Yeah, polka, polka, polka. Uh, actually, it was Sheboygan. Sheboygan. We were making Sheboygan. Huge in Sheboygan. Huge. Yeah. It sold, it sold 612 yeah. copies. Well, we actually left our kid one time. We left him in a funeral home for about seven hours. But he got better in about three weeks. In three weeks, he started talking again. It's like, it's so good. Just the, so, name, just the name of his band, the Kenosha Kickers. That, <laughs> that alone is so funny. The Kenosha Kickers. And there's just a scene where they're all in the back of a U-Haul truck playing polka with Catherine. Uh, uh, and he keeps being like, hey, you want to try playing the clarinet? <laughs> yeah, and he's great. very insistent, too. He really wants her to play that clarinet. I know. She has to say no like five times. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we haven't even uh, talked about, and Chris, this is what I was te- I was texting you about this last night. But as adults, I don't have children. Chris, you have children. Christian, I don't. I don't. I don't know I do your not. family dynamics. I do not. You do not have children. But even as a person who doesn't have children, as a thirty-six-year-old man watching this movie, my main concern, everything else was immaterial. My main concern was getting Catherine O'Hara back to her child. Yeah. Like I was genuinely terrified for her and i didn't feel like the movie was terrified enough because it was trying to be a children's movie and i kept thinking to myself like what is going through her head 
she must be losing her mind. Like oh, yeah. her kid could, she can't get in touch with her kid. She she has no idea what's going on. Like and it's like two or three. Imagine two or three days where oh, you cannot God. talk to your with child. With an eight year old like, at home, like, yeah. no idea what's going on with your child. And her her husband, her piece of shit fucking <laughs> husband. Hey, he's up. the one who sent them all to Paris no, first no, class. No. All right, fuck. Fuck that motherfucker. He shows up at the end of the movie after she must have been losing her goddamn mind. Traveling across country in a fucking U-Haul with a polka band. He shows up and is like, hey, what's up? We took the flight. Hey, Kevin, you look good. Look like you made it. All right. Love you, pal. And walks away. (laughs) What the fuck? What the fuck? If I had been left home alone. I mean, I love my parents. They're amazing. But what's amazing about them is that if they had left me home alone for two or three days, they would have shown up and showered me with oh the God. most love a child oh could be God. showered with. They would have just been like, "Where? what do you want to do? I love you so much. I'm so sorry. And like sat me down and held me and been like insane about it. And they're not even like, you know, they're blue collar people. They're not even like, <laughs> like touchy feely people. They would have just been. In this movie, they're just like, hey, he's fine. Okay, let's go. Where's the turkey? What'd you get up to, kid? <laughs> Nothing yeah, much. It's, it's <laughs> the way they reacted coming home. And he's like, I'm fine. I bought groceries. <laughs> I mean, he does have a good scene with Catherine O'Hara, like where the two of, they have an emotional scene together where she's like, yes. Kevin, I'm so sorry. And he but like looks like the, he's going to be mad. But then, right, when the rest of the family gets home, they don't give a shit. Yeah. But then her husband and her husband in the airport is like, okay, babe, you're going to stay here? All right, I'll go hang out with the rest of the family. Okay, be careful. Goodbye. Love you. <laughs> what? I, I, I can't get over what? that. There are other adults with those kids. Those <laughs> other adults would stay there with those kids, and you would stay with your wife and figure out what the fuck oh to God. do about yeah. your alone child in a house outside of chicago for three fucking days you wouldn't be like okay babe cool you're gonna make it home when you can okay we'll we'll, we'll figure it out i'm gonna go over to the hotel but you know like other people like they say one of the things they say in improv is it's like it's never the first time where that something happens so like look you went to the fucking ticket counter they said we don't have any tickets until tomorrow and your wife is like well i'm gonna stay in the airport and you're like Okay, yeah, okay. This is what she this is how she is about fucking everything. You know, this is how she is about everything <laughs> all the time. It's like, okay, you're gonna, of course, you're gonna sleep in the airport. Okay. I mean, they said there were no tickets. You understand? Like, we offered them a huge amount of money and we just literally cannot get on a plane until tomorrow. Yes, but I'm going to sleep here. <laughs> you're like, okay, 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 cool, cool. All right, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, but, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, but like, their child is alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mostly as like, so as somebody who is a, has a kid, right, and this is such a 2020 point of view, but when they got to Paris, they realized that um, nobody, like they, they had left Kevin at home, right? I just found myself thinking like, well, I'm sure one of your friends is home. Like, I'm sure someone is home. Like, that was the part of the movie I found the least believable. But this, hey, it just speaks to the alienation of the suburbs. Like, I live in a great community in a great city, you know? I know all my neighbors. I have lots of friends that live nearby. Like, and I was like, these motherfuckers don't know one single no. person in the city of Chicago that could come over and check on their son in like this level of emergency. Like, do they, they don't have any family that weren't invited on the Paris trip, but who don't live like that far away, Apparently who could like not. go check on him, you know? Like, that was the part that was so wild to me. And I understood it was necessary for the plot, but I was like, 
And they're like, we just keep getting machines. I'm like, this is a very shallow group of friends that these people have, you know, like. Right, there's absolutely nobody in this neighborhood that they can call, like, anywhere, even outside of the neighborhood. I would call people in a separate state. Yeah, if I, I mean, it's to. an emergency, like, like, you know? Yeah, like, like if, if, I, if I had done that, I feel like I could call people, I could call someone three states away and be like, holy fuck. I le- like we forgot our child. He is eight and he's yeah, alone the in the house. Working, and like, I and get like a hold of him. Even if they weren't even close friends and they were three states away, they were work friends, they were associates, whatever. They would be like, Oh my god, I we're on our way. Like, I mean, don't worry, not? we're gonna pick him up how and he's coming, he's coming to our house. Like, it even if wonder, it takes twelve hours to drive there. Is it almost just like shame that that they that they don't want to be exposed for being such bad parents? That that's why they don't cast a wider net in a way. I mean, <laughs> it, it makes you wonder. Yeah, they don't want anyone at the country club to know they left their kid alone at the no. house on Christmas. You know, <laughs> they're like, only call people we don't really like that much. You know, do yeah. not send the caddy to my house. Do not send the caddy there. He will steal my cufflinks. He's been eyeing them for two summers. <laughs> 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 it's so funny um, you know that's the one area what i think where i think you just identified where it is quite a bit different from this other property that i've long thought that home alone is quite similar to but to me you know home alone is also quite similar in its vision of a beautiful neighborhood but one that also holds terror uh it's very similar to twin peaks which actually ju- you know aired yeah. right around the same time made its debut earlier that year in 1990 and, uh, you know, it's also this gorgeous vision of this small town uh, that you really just want to bathe in, practically. You just want to soak <laughs> it all up so much because, and, you know, just oh, the beauty of the lights, even the traffic light. And it, it kind of reminds me of that moment, like, when Joe Pesci is, like, calling out, like, all right, now the lights on this house are going to come on now. And then this one in two yeah. minutes. And then it's like he thinks that he's, like, this master of the neighborhood. He has it all figured out completely. But it's that's the kind of thing that, like, you know, does remind me of Twin Peaks in a way because it's like, but you've got this threat there as well. This is actually a scary place. And it is a place where maybe you don't know your neighbors all that much. The only thing is that in Twin Peaks, at least the people do know each other much, much more than- Yeah, I would uh, say it's a much tighter knit community. A than much tighter knit community. Right? I mean, here, this is just, they're so alienated that the one nice guy who actually saves the day at the end, who lives next door, old man Marley, you know, they just never speak to him, only will spread rumors about him that he's an ax murderer from South Bend or whatever, you know? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is such a thing of this period in history, right? Like I may be back to Poltergeist, you know, and through Edward Scissorhands and through Twin Peaks and through this movie, you know, uh, Cry Baby, Serial Mom. It's like the perfect suburb where like really something sinister is going on. I mean, it was such a real trope of, of American life. And it's like, I, 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 it's so hard to even put yourself in the mindset of where like the suburbs were this thing that like everyone like assumed was great, you know, like I, uh, because I grew up with that kind of media. It's like, I, I can't, you know, I always thought that there was something rotten in the suburbs and just like growing up in the suburbs, right. That you can, I mean, the only thing to do in the suburbs is get drunk in a parking lot. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, don't you think that you also like grew up with this idea that there was rot in the suburbs because by the time you were of age to pay attention to media, all media was like, look at how like rotten the suburbs are yeah. under, behind the curtain. 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, like, literally, there are, like, demons everywhere, you know? Yeah. Like, it starts with Blue Velvet, and then after that, it's like, you know, if you look under, if you, if you look underneath, like, into the grass, you know, there's, like, dirty ants fucking and, like, murdering each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that is, like, basically what every, like, and then by 97, you have happiness. Yeah. <laughs> which is like the absolute pinnacle of like suburban nightmare <laughs> possible oh like a romantic comedy about a pedophile and a boy you know <laughs> I, I which is like yeah which is like probably a response to home alone <laughs> <laughs> i mean not as subversive I mean, as problem child obviously but it's it's getting there it's getting there dude i I really think you're going to come around on problem child. <laughs> like I, I know now is not the time to get into it, but I do feel oh like in God. five years, this podcast might be over and you'll be like somewhere and you'll be like, you know what? Ricky had a lot of good opinions <laughs> about problem child. <laughs> I love how it turned into a weird, like grandmother guilt trip there where you're like, look, someday I'll be dead and you'll be standing at my fucking grave and you'll be like, he had a point about uh, problem child. <laughs> I would be so I would be so proud if at my funeral you gave a eulogy speech about how I was right about problem child. <laughs> <laughs> like I swuck my hand to God. If it works out, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, one of the things that I that I that I felt like while watching this movie as an adult was that I remembered the movie having so much more time spent on him being excited about home alone being yes. home alone yeah me, upon, that upon rewatching it i was like there's like 15 minutes of him excited about being home alone wait and can i just say wait can i just interrupt to say i love that the first way you said it like the name of his character was home alone or like it was a superhero <laughs> that he became <laughs> i liked it when he was more excited about being home alone <laughs> no when he when he turns into home alone and then <laughs> but that, upon rewatching the movie it's like 10 or 15 minutes if that where he's like all right i'm alone i can like order pizza and like you know take a dump in the house wherever i want or whatever and then, like, all of a sudden, he's like, where are my parents? I'm sad. And, like, there's burglars coming And these burglars are going to try to murder me. I forgot the part where he's literally cowering under the bed, like, shaking yeah. with fear the first time the criminals come. But you're right. It's like he doesn't really enjoy being home alone for more than, like, 20 minutes, basically. You know, it's like no. one evening. He, like, eats a big thing of ice cream. And even by the time he's eating the ice cream, he's going, like, hey, mom, come and stop me. <laughs> and, like, sadly putting the ice cream in his mouth. <laughs> and of course that's when he first puts on angels with filthy souls which right the movie like yes. apparently a generation of people thought was a real movie and, and it, seth rogan among them like a, a couple years ago he tweeted like wait that wasn't a real movie and then like oh all God. these people were like it's like how um the tim allen santa claus movie because it's the santa claus with an e on the end claus with an e mm -hmm. like everyone thought that that's how you spell santa claus and it's like no it's a pun people you know <laughs> wait do people say <laughs> that people think they that's do. how you spell santa claus they no do. way they absolutely do Oh Seth Rogen, you dumb fuck! Your entire <laughs> successful Hollywood career yeah. is negated by your idiotic moment of thinking that that was a <laughs> real movie. Fuck shit. you! I hope you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you're embarrassed, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, Seth, if you're listening, though, you can email me. I don't think you're a piece of shit at all. Like, I'd love to work on some projects I, with you. Like, it would be great. If you, if you would love to come on the podcast and talk about your favorite 90s movie. That I do have a, I do have a project, have I think. You on. I like I, you. I have a project in development right now that would be perfect for not even just you, but your production company. So I would love oh. to talk. So I mean, Super that's bad, more than it. am I right? <laughs> Super bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to oh, derail man. the conversation by yelling super bad, Ricky. <laughs> super bad. I can't wait. You know, in 17 years, when you get to the 30th anniversary of Super Bad, definitely have me back on. If you don't have stuff. I mean, you never know. You know, in 17 years, you know, maybe yeah. Seth will, will come on at that point. But uh, um, yeah, maybe. Speaking maybe, of. Maybe. Yeah, maybe he'll make some really bad mistakes in his life. Yeah, <laughs> we can get him on. Um, speaking of things that aren't as much of the movie as you remember, I mean, I would say for me, the number one was that the fight with the wet bandits is like 20 minutes at the very end of the movie. Yeah. Like, isn't that the entire movie? I'm pretty sure that's the entire movie. It leaves such an impact because, I mean, the, the violence there is really brutal. My God, that moment when uh, Marv, uh, Daniel Stern, steps on the nail. Oh, my God. I couldn't look. I had to look away from the screen. No, I, 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 I fast forward through that like every time. As a 34-year-old, I will still fast forward through that. That is, that's like Kill Bill level gore to me. It's like that a is... six-inch nail. He is wearing bare feet and they show his foot coming right to the top of the nail. You know, it's like, oh, my God. I couldn't. Oh, my God. It's, I got to be honest. Like, I, you're talking to a person who watches uh, yeah. like gory horror movies. Yeah, Ricky's like a real sick he's like a real sicko <laughs> i spent the majority of october watching like italian horror movies where Ooh. eyes get punctured and pop ricky's out. favorite director is mel gibson <laughs> that is not true at all. <laughs> wait wait the eyes get punctured uh, one was that lucio fulci zombie absolutely no uh not zombie the beyond oh the beyond yeah yeah, yeah. and totally. then the dog like rips off the skin of the woman's neck and face oh and stuff like that yeah, yeah. but nonetheless like there is a context to those movies where it's fun to watch that. Where yeah. you're kind of like, yeah, go get it. Like, this is a hilarious. Home Alone all of a sudden becomes a Fulci movie. Yes, it does. <laughs> and you're like, and, and, and I'm, I was like, did, was not for it like last night as an adult i was like i do not want this movie to become this i don't like this it seems completely please, out of left field it seems completely please, out of left field that it happens please stop torturing these men i get <laughs> yeah, it that no. they are burglars and that like they shouldn't be doing what they're doing but please stop torturing these men this is like joe pesci falls down the stairs the ice stairs i think seven times <laughs> it might be three but it felt like seven to 10. He gets his head so burned with a blowtorch and then they show the missing skin on the top yeah. of his head. He has like it's very serious burns on the top like, of his head. What the fuck are we doing in this movie at that point? Like, like it's not it's zany. Terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's graphic. It's gratuitous. It's rated PG. Really mean. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, can, I, I mean, I do wonder. That's one of those moments where I'm watching this movie as an adult and I'd be like, I don't know if I would watch this with my kid. Like, I think I, I would probably know. rather watch something that contextual, like, would I, maybe, maybe more violent, but had like a contextual idea about violence that was different. And yes, than this. Because what's, what I don't like about this is that, like, the context is that, like, they deserve this this torturous punishment because yeah. of who they are. And it's funny. And I don't think it's funny. I'd rather show my child something like really violent where it's not. 
it's not funny that it's violent. It's you know? so like, I, flagrantly I, I gratuitous. It's so gratuitous. Yeah. It's so over the top. And it is like, it is like the kind of violence that maybe you would get in like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, it's like, or whatever. Yes, exactly. but, but it's also like seeing that actually played out for real with real people. I mean, and, and having like this element of like real punishment behind it. And yeah, it, 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 it hits hard. It does make you uncomfortable watching it. And I mean, it's got to be one of the reasons why, like, you know, like I know Roger Ebert hated this film so much. So did Siskel. And I thought Siskel yeah. would have liked it. Like <laughs> I was watching the movie. And I texted Chris. I bet Siskel loved this movie. <laughs> he said, I uh, bet this was his favorite movie of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out like when I watched the clip of Siskel and Ebert, Siskel did not, it was not his favorite movie of the year. And I was like, oh, finally he got, like kind of got one right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so funny because it's got this fucking Looney Tunes violence in it, and but ninety percent of this movie is a sweet movie about a little kid learning to love his family and like ordering yeah. pizza and like you know um, like eating too much ice cream and a mom desperately trying to get back to the son. I mean, it's very much like a John Hughes doing a kids movie. And then there's just 20 minutes of absolute bonkers Looney Tunes real world violence packed into it. Although we do get a glimpse of his dark side pretty early on when he plays the Angels with Filthy Souls clip to scare the pizza <laughs> right. delivery kid. And it's like that kid must be so terrified. And it's like, why doesn't that kid just like call the police afterward? But I guess it's just like since this is the pre cell phone era, he's not going to like go find a payphone when he has another pizza to deliver. Like he literally I guess he, he he's just going to focus on keeping his job rather than reporting that his life was just in danger he thinks. and kevin you, paid for the pizza he had no reason to do it he was just being sadistic yeah. <laughs> like well you you guys actually bring up an interesting uh feeling that i had at the beginning of the movie which is that like this period of time where working class people are like i guess you could you know you could categorize them as like low class workers pizza delivery people were consistently characterized as um, irresponsible or ill-advised or, or poor because it oh, opens right. with the pizza delivery guy like crashing into a statue. And then the in, guys uh, driving the airport shuttle do the same thing. And they're also and coded then, as like lower class people. Yeah. And then he shows up and it's like, hey guys, you owe me $120. And everybody's like disregarding him. And then even when he gets paid, it's kind of like, it, like everybody's walking away from him. And it's kind of like, it's not really... Like he's not a real know, person. Like, like he's yeah, not a real person. Like, yeah. If you're not paying a guy who showed up and is you're owed hundred and twenty dollars, like that's fucked up. Yeah. Well, that's like, how they're that's treating Joe Pesci money. too. Like they don't know he's not a real cop. Like there's a cop standing in their fucking living room, and they're not. They don't give a shit, and they're not looking at him. <laughs> they're not talking to him. They say like, "Oh hey," and like walk away again. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And, there's you know. like a weird disregard of of uh, of like blue collar life. At the beginning of the movie, not to like, you know, put on some sort of big class idea of uh, on Home Alone, but it also feels well. It does have a weird class level. Of, like, it does. That feels like that well, feels very to, particular to... to that moment in time in movies and in pop culture, where it was like, oh, the pizza delivery guy or the fast food workers were always like dumb idiot teenagers with zits, and like everybody, like anybody yeah. in a blue collar position making minimum wage was like a fucking idiot with zits or something. And like, we've reached this point in time, 20, 30 years later, where it's like, no, actually like people in these positions are single moms or like 
yeah, parents right. trying to make a living and like figuring out their lives. But because everybody who grew up on home alone thinks that their teenagers who are just doing this as a summer job don't like, will not vote for a minimum wage. Yeah. That will yeah. like, that is like a part of their life because they've, they were raised on some myth mythology of what these blue collar jobs actually were or, or, or have become. I couldn't help but read that into the beginning of the movie. I think and, that's and, there. I really do. I do think that this is, you know, a holdover of Reaganomics to to an extent. I mean, in that regard, that's still sort of the 80s element in this movie, even though this is from 1990. Um, the, the only counterpoint to that, I, I would say, is just that it, it, I think it is also a portrait of the insularity and cluelessness of of you know the upper crust here as well because this is clearly a very wealthy family right they go way out of their way to code them as being rich right like so many things like they're flying first class to paris they live in this gigantic house you know and they're so clueless and they're so you know really out of touch with you know normal human experience and i mean that they even you know they don't really seem to care about much of anything other than the mom yeah i mean like you were saying about the dad like he doesn't care he's not sweating this at all he is not worried about this one bit you know that is the, i mean that is like one of the craziest things that i've ever seen in a movie is it that he's kind of like we we okay hon good luck get home see if he's okay i'm gonna go hang out with the other kids it's like your fucking kid could be dead. <laughs> like he's a, he's an eight year old alone in the house. He could do anything, and we've seen him already fall from a stack of shelves. Like that, <laughs> that could have killed him. Like that alone could have. Yeah. Yeah, oh we God. know as viewers that that didn't kill him because we saw it, but that could have killed him. Yeah, he picks up broken wood from his fucking head. Like Maybe he the whole movie is a Jacob's person. Ladder scenario and he did die <laughs> climbing up those shelves and this whole ridiculous, you know, like fight with the bandits and his parents yeah. come back to rescue first, him. It's all just in his head. Hours, <laughs> yeah. The first five hours of being home alone was his Vietnam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly, 100%. And then they do it again next year. Yeah. This is when you're in, like, Die Hard 2 territory where you're like, boy, I can't believe this keeps happening to me. (laughs) It's like... How clueless this family is, though, it's not a shock that (laughs) that this could happen again. Are these the kind of people who necessarily would learn from this experience? No, no, they would not learn anything. Like you were saying, Ricky, it's like the second they get home, the dad is like, well, that worked out and just walks away. So it's like, no, they learned nothing. They learned absolutely nothing. Everybody, everybody walks away from him so that he can look in the window and walk slowly over to it. I don't know. Like if my parents had left me home alone for an hour, they would I know, have I know. not left me alone for like <laughs> seven hours afterwards. I'd be like, do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to do something? What do you want to do? Whatever you want to do, let's do it together. I love you so much. You're so such a good kid. Right? Everybody, they come home and they're like, hi. And then they walk away. So but see, I think look in I the think window this... and see the old fucking scary man hug his son. I think this brings up an interesting point, though, because we are talking about how right from the jump, the movie is from Kevin's point of view and we're seeing his family. They're treating him awfully. But we're supposed to, as the viewer, you know, we're taking this with a grain of salt because this is what every kid feels like. They just don't understand 
what's going on with the world. But does the end of the movie make the point that no, Kevin was right. They actually do hate him, you know? Like, it was he was not imagining it. Everyone in his family hates him and wishes he was dead. And the fact that he survived, they're all just like, huh, you didn't die, huh? You know? Well, I mean, the, the movie makes the point that like, uh, uh, all he needed was an apology. <laughs> Like, he's a child, and the only thing he wanted was for someone to say, I'm sorry. (laughs) So that's Uh, that's why, you know, there's all this discussion right now about this remake that apparently is going into production at some point in the near future, or a reboot, or some kind of reimagined continuation of the series, basically starting over with a new kid, and it's going to go direct to Disney+. It's going to be the kid, uh, Archie Miller, who was like the best friend character in Jojo Rabbit last year. Oh, really? So, that yeah, kid? It's going to be that kid. I mean, he be... was good in Jojo Rabbit. He was really good in that movie. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, he certainly was memorable. And, Bored uh, already. And Bored already. I know. That's the thing. I mean, I have to say, I, I kind of am too. And I would say that if they were to do anything with this IP, if they were to do anything, there's such a story to be told here about... 40-year-old Kevin McAllister, Macaulay Culkin <laughs> as he is now, what the hell is this guy like at 40 years old? Didn't he make a, like a web short oh about this, God. Macaulay? He yeah. Did. Dude, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't a great movie be, <clears throat> and maybe I'm wrong here, but like 40-year-old, like 40-year-old Kevin McAllister leaves his kid at home and has to deal with the guilt of that. That would while be at the same time trying to get back to his kid. Like at the very least, add that as a plot line because like, what else are we doing? We've already done the reboot. There was another kid in Home Alone Three. There was like there? three other kids. They made like a bunch. If you go, yeah. if you go on, this movie's on Dis- this movie's on Disney Plus, and if you if you look up Home Alone, you'll get to not just the movie but the Home Alone Zone, which is a whole <laughs> subsection of Disney Plus that has like six Home Alone movies. And you're right, Kristen. This must just be setting up whatever it is they have coming. Whatever yeah. reboot or series or whatever. Um, very also, proud to say, very proud to say, I do not have Disney Plus and I had to rent oh, Home Alone. There you go. You paid money in order to prepare for this conversation. Yeah, that's, I, really that's I would it. prefer I would prefer to pay the three ninety nine for Home Alone than to actually pay the monthly fee for Disney Plus, which I <laughs> think or may, you could pay the I, I think maybe the most evilest of the content. <laughs> Barons. Ricky, I just love giving my money to Disney Corporation. They just, I just love it. It makes me so happy, you know. Although, at this point, point they're all, somehow, I would say that Amazon, within terms of being a content baron, is the least evil somehow. Well, they don't seem invested the in the are... content. They're invested in other stuff. Yeah. Like Disney. Yeah, is so therefore, like you just rent like good stuff and you have channels. They don't the care, exactly. Right. And, the, and like the platform is like pretty good to, pretty pretty user friendly and i use it because I, I i like shutter and i like showtime right. and like those end up on my you know platform but netflix has become impossible in regards to like content beyond what they make or movies with the exception of the last five years yeah and and disney plus i don't give a i'm an adult ma- single man i don't have kids i don't give a fuck about what's on disney Dude, plus like first of all like you're way off base like disney no. plus has a lot of really good stuff on it i was just watching some Garbage, good cartoons from the 1940s today it's which was great um i mean christian and i are both flirty and so like it, we are like literally brainwashed into loving disney and there's nothing we can do about it like like christian how many times do you think you have been to disney world in, oh in- it 
over 60 at least i mean yeah i mean with overnight stays i'm not i'm not talking yeah, about i've done multiple that. i i went there for school more than once <laughs> how 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 are you both like forming full sentences right now and, <laughs> <laughs> drooling on your drooling yeah, on yourself and quoting mickey mouse and like saved by the bell or something <laughs> The last yeah, it's just such a part. It's such a part of culture in, in it Florida. Is. It really is. It's like the main thing. You, like anytime I would see my grandparents, they would take me to Disney World or like somebody's visiting from out of town. Or they used to have this thing called Grad Night. Like, did you go to Grad Night, Christian? You or know, were you too young? I didn't. It was really too bad. I I would have loved to have done that, but you know, we, we were like ninety minutes away, so oh yeah, it, it didn't really work out for us. This is this thing where high school seniors get to go to Disney World, and so I went in the year two thousand and Destiny's Child performed and all my friends ate pot brownies, but they didn't give me one because I was like kind of fighting with them right then. Um, but like they shut down the whole park <laughs> at night. Yeah, I know because I'm a fucking dweeb. Dude, I was cool and I smoked pot and I drank dr liquor drinks. Okay. No one gave you the pot brownies. I was so mad. I was so mad. No one gave you the pot brownies at Disney World. They made such a big deal. They made such a big deal about like you are going to get in so much trouble if you brought pot with you that I didn't bring any pot, even though I was totally smoking pot at the time because I was very cool. But they like they made it sound like you were going to like get expelled and you're never going to go to college. And but my cool friends brought pot brownies and they didn't give me any. Chris, that is my favorite thing that I've ever heard about you is that you got denied pot brownies at Disney World. <laughs> they didn't even tell me they had them. I just found out later. Like, what the honest fuck? Like, you will be made fun of by me forever for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. Oh um, my god. I mean, well, Disney. It's a way of life. Disney is a way of life. Yeah, I'm an East Coast kid. Uh, we, where do you think Florida shit? <laughs> no, yeah, but you guys, you you guys are like more and more part of the South. It's disgusting. We're we're just like <laughs> we're just like we're just like born cynical and kind of liberal and like you know and, and sort of mean. Uh, that's just how it goes. I want to read something. I want to read something uh, that on the Wikipedia about the set of Home Alone really fast, and that yeah. is, yeah. um. Uh, cinematographer Julio McCat recalled that Pesci was more difficult to work with than Macaulay Culkin. The older actor believed that some of the dialogue was not of a quality commensurate with his acting ability. Okay, hold on. Because <laughs> the rest is even better. He also resented the early calls. Since they prevented... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Oh my god. Since since they prevented him from starting his day with nine holes of golf as he preferred to do. <laughs> Hold on. Oh my god. After he took the assistant director by the collar one day to complain about this. <laughs> like guys, that sentence means that he grabbed the AD by the collar and threw him up against the wall. What's going on with these fucking and calls, then, huh? <laughs> yeah, and was and was like, I want to fucking play golf every morning. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> daily, after he did that, daily call times were moved from 7 to 9 a.m. to accommodate wow. his rounds of golf. On the what? other end of the schedule, the crew had limited time to film the many nighttime scenes since Culkin could not work any later than 10 p.m due to his age. Also on the set, Pesci and Stern both had difficulty 
re- refraining from swear words. <laughs> because Culkin was around all the time and they couldn't do it. Is that insane? And But he did get one shit in there. One shit is allowed under the PG rating. When he like puts his uh, foot through the, the doggy door and he loses his shoe. And, it, oh, really? and you hear him say shit. Very, very. That's it's so very funny. subtle, but it is on the soundtrack, no doubt. That's so funny. I mean, well, it is. I was thinking about this watching this movie. Like, I mean, we just did Goodfellas. What, like two months ago? So, if you're Joe Pesci, you're releasing Goodfellas, and then you're releasing Home Alone. Like, that is completely wild. <laughs> that is a hundred percent crazy. Look, I'm a diehard Joe Pesci, and I think it's kind of king to be like, yo, I want to golf every morning. But at the <laughs> yeah. same time. At the same time, like, fuck you. Like, yeah, fuck off. This, I mean, come like, on. You're working. Never, you're on the fucking I, movie. You're I working. Feel like, I feel like never has there been a greater example of how fucking easy the actor's job is. Oh, my God. Yeah. And how, how quickly it gets into the head of the actor because of how easy the job is to be like, no, 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 no. I play golf in the morning <sighs> instead Man. of going to set. Like, I mean, it, it really is like... It is a very, no offense to actors. I'm so sorry if you listen to this. I don't think you do. But if you do, I'm so sorry. You have an extremely easy job. (laughs) And if you are of the main cast, you have an an even easier job. Oh, yeah. And people pamper you. So you should shut the fuck up and take whatever call that comes to you. Because everybody else is doing the same thing and you're getting paid a lot more than them and it's not 1990 anymore. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I don't think this happens as much these days. Like, definitely not. Honestly, I think you'd be surprised. Oh, my God. I'd love to know just what North Shore Chicago golf course he was hitting up. Because it's like January when they filmed this movie also. So he's going up to play golf in January at (laughs) 6 in the morning. Like, what the fuck kind of coat is he wearing? You know, like playing like Sega Genesis golf. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was briefly Alice Cooper's publicist. And this is also something Alice Cooper does is everywhere he travels, he builds in like enough time in the day to take to play a full game of golf and to take a nap. Nice. And those are important parts of his schedule every day. Well, at least if it's like up front, like it sounds like in Pesci's case here, this had not been negotiated before the shoot. Somehow this is just like he's on set and this right. is now being renegotiated. <laughs> I just love the idea of like good fellas Joe Pesci, who is in this children's movie on this set <laughs> with all these children, children's choir, Chris Columbus. And he's like a accosting the ad like basically committing felony assault on someone demanding to play golf like i'm sure it's very outside of what else is going on in the movie grabbing grabbing the ad by the collar in a trailer and being like i don't think you fucking get it i played nine holes before 8 a.m you motherfucker I'm just picturing it exactly like the, like, what am I a clown to you scene? Because it's like, at first he's like, ah, these calls are pretty early, huh? And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry, Joe. I'm like, yeah, because I, I, I got to play golf in the morning. Oh, yeah, okay, sure thing, Joe. And he just grabs him. He's like, listen to me, you little fuck. I said I got to play golf in the morning. <laughs> and how incredible. Go ahead, how how incredible that four months after this movie came out, he would then be collecting his Oscar for Goodfellas for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> so fucking crazy. 
It's so crazy. These days, if you make Norbit after Dreamgirls, you don't get the Oscar. No. But in those days, it was fine. It was fine. Sometimes, sometimes if, like, if they're really like right back to back like this, like if you have, it, I mean, like Norbit was not, you know, I mean, obviously it was, it was panned, but it wasn't like a huge hit either. I mean, with, with Home Alone, yeah, I mean, maybe it didn't get like the greatest reviews ever, but, you know, it's, some people certainly liked it. And then it got... It was very successful. Very successful. Huge hit. It was yeah, a blockbuster. Right. So sometimes yeah, if you yeah, have yeah. like the, the serious movie that's the awards contender and then you have like a blockbuster, that can really pay off and help you get that Oscar for the serious movie. But, uh, of course, he had like the best, uh, best, the best acceptance speech ever. Just his, like, <laughs> his three words, it's a privilege. And then walks off, which is amazing. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Here's like just a, a, an amazing bit of like a cosmic twist of fate here. That uh, the previous year's Best Supporting Actress winner was Brenda Fricker from My Left Foot, who uh, presented the award to him for, for Goodfellas. Brenda Fricker then would be in Home Alone 2 as the bird lady who's like the, that film's version of old man old man marley basically like she's scary to oh him God, and so then funny. ends up helping him out against joe pesci and daniel stern so <laughs> no scenes life. no scenes shared though between the two of them i don't think right or maybe uh, at the very end of the movie right at the very end she she's the yeah. one who defeats them she sicks her birds her oh, pigeons she sicks her pigeons on him that's on right him. yeah yeah <laughs> art <laughs> Art, beautiful. So, Ricky, do you want to talk about our favorite parts of this movie? Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, uh, we have a couple things that we do at the end of the podcast where we ask uh, favorite parts and then um, uh, most 90s moment and then what this movie has grown out of 30 years later. So, Christian, first things first, what is uh, your favorite part of the movie? Oh, definitely the scene we talked about in the church, that extended dialogue scene with between Kevin and old man Marley. Uh, everything about it, I love. I mean, I I love the way it's shot. I love the way that uh, you know when Kevin is entering the church, you've got all these amazing tracking shots of him, like that are his point of view, him looking up at the statues and the stained glass, and and then you've got when he's actually sitting there talking to Old Man Marley, you've got such beautiful music throughout. I mean, it starts uh, with Oh Holy Night, then it's mm -hmm. John Williams' original song, Star of Bethlehem. That the children's chorus sings oh really and then and then they continue on uh and they end the scene with uh carol of the bells so it's the children's chorus singing all three of those and uh, and then the, the carol of the bells is when they part and then that becomes like a more amped up john williams version kind of like as an instrumental version as he leaves and that whole sequence i think is just incredibly well done and really does elevate the movie to a whole other level that i i think does justify taking the whole thing that much more seriously yeah yeah chris uh yeah so i talked about this earlier in the the show but like i just love i just love the christmas magic of this movie i'm a real sucker for christmas magic i love the holiday season and i just i love a movie like this because so often it can feel forced or antiseptic or it's just somehow or it, it has some idea of what christmas is that i it, it doesn't resonate with me but I think the, the way that this movie treats Christmas, this John Hughes, Chris Columbus way, it's a perfect marriage between the two of them because it's like real family, but like a little bit of kind of magic stuff to it, which we didn't even talk about, which is the, for so much of the movie, the animating idea is that Kevin Cal McAllister thinks he has made his family disappear. So when he is having this huge celebration, he thinks that he has wished them 
to the cornfield. Like he <laughs> thinks that they are dead. And he, that is what is going on when he's having this huge celebration. But like, you know, aside of that, I mean more like the beginning of the movie, the way that it's just like, it just makes you feel this kind of very real family Christmas time stuff and without trying too hard. And I, I love that so much. I really do love it. I have to say, um, my favorite parts of the movie are uh, sort of in line with, with, with you, Christian. But once the, I, I, I really genuinely hate the, uh, the burglar stuff. And I really wish that the movie went from the church to the family coming home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you should make an edit of Home Alone that's that. I genuinely start crying in the church. Yeah. When the the old man says, I haven't talked to my son in years and I don't know why we got into an argument and I said, I don't want to see you anymore. And I just like, I've never had that argument with my dad, but we can have a, at times a uh, contentious relationship. And every now and then it feels like it, it, it could escalate to some weird point where we're like, you know, we just won't back down from each other. And so I kind of get that happening between two men, uh, father and son. And it just like really strikes a chord with me. And I gen and I start crying in that moment. <laughs> and like, I cry in this weird way where I'm just, I laugh because I'm, cr I laugh and cry at the same time because I'm crying at home alone. And I get kind of mad that I'm crying at home alone. So it becomes this weird kind of like, fuck and you, you're fuck you. Oh my God, fuck you. And then like, the burglary thing happens and it feels like a complete distraction from the heart of the movie. And yeah. I got, and I genuinely got bored and started like playing guitar and like reading stuff on my phone during the whole burglary thing. Cause it's like, I, I don't like this. This is boring. And then her, his mother comes home and she says, I'm sorry. And he smiles. And I started kind of tearing up again and they hug and then goes, goes to the window and he sees the old man hugging his son and granddaughter and I lose it. I literally, I lost it in my apartment. I thought that was like that was like Terrence Malick beauty that I had never seen. It was like Tree of Life. Like you've captured the experience of male, like masculine existence in one shot, and and I and I get it, and I I can't believe you did, and I truly feel like the movie does that, like it doesn't even know it does that because it's about something else, and that's just like a subplot, but it kind of does capture a certain aspect of of, of masculinity within that small subplot that I yeah. I, I think is really poignant without even without even really knowing it. Like, I bet if you talked to Chris Columbus, he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we just like got to put a little thing with this old guy. In I just thought it needs something a little bit, you know, like a little serious, make you feel something. Yeah. You know, I don't know, you know. But it is actually like a very poignant statement about masculinity between generations, whether it's, you know, the greatest generation and the boomers or the boomers and the, and, and, and our generation, you know, like it does. It, Can you not bring yourself to call yourself a millennial? Is that, is, are you having trouble with that? No, I was trying to figure out between like Gen X and Millennial and like where I stood between the two. And I <laughs> You're got definitely awesome a Millennial. I'm sorry to, to tell you. I'm cusp, motherfucker. I'm, I'm cusp. cusp. I'm older than you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yo, we are. Yeah, yeah. You really show us cusp, to be honest. I know. I'm old as shit. I understand. Don't worry. Yeah, and, <laughs> uh, it, but nonetheless, like, it, I, I do feel like 
without even knowing that the movie captures a, a what sometimes what masculinity feels like between generations and yeah. uh yeah and it it makes me it like when i i texted chris something like like oh this is making me cry but like oftentimes i will think of that narrative that storyline in the movie and tear up like throughout <laughs> my life i'm dead serious like i like I, i'll think of that storyline and it makes me kind of teary and watching it in the movie i i genuinely wept and yelled at the movie for making me cry because it was home alone and i was mad that it did that <laughs> i love but it that. is it's a beautiful it's it's a beautifully made movie i mean this is like we're saying everyone remembers it as like him hitting and dropping an iron on daniel stern but that part like doesn't even belong in the movie <laughs> really it doesn't even belong in the movie no, at all it really doesn't i mean honestly i would be fine if there were an edit that just somehow glossed <laughs> over. i will say with home alone 2 which which i also like i mean it's not as good as the first one but um i, I in that case i literally do every time i watch it you know, even into my thirties, uh, skip through the torture of the the wet bandits entirely in that one because there the brutality is ratcheted up even so much more. That Doesn't he drop a brick like six stories onto Joe Pesci or like something? Multiple bricks and <sighs> and like he, he electrocutes Daniel Stern and you like see like this outline of his like skeleton. oh you see a skeleton right? <laughs> so no oh that that I skip through entirely because you know it adds nothing to the movie and I think what you're saying is. 100% right even if, even you know in the original film if there was some way to uh you know but luckily that's what the fast forward button is for <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. so the other thing we talk about is uh what is the most 90s part of the movie uh, christian what, what what did you feel on what the most 90s thing in this is oh wow you know i think just the idea that you can be leaving your house with only 45 minutes to spare to get on your flight <laughs> And then, and then you can still make it, and they still make it. And they I open the door to the jetway for them. The door to the jetway is yeah. closed. That's the Whoa. universal signal that you cannot get on the airplane anymore. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, sure, go ahead." And I was like, "Okay, fuck off." Yeah. It's one of those things. I mean, I remember like when I was a kid, like I was really obsessed with uh, airplanes and our airport, the Tampa airport. And like, you know, my dad and I, like, I, I would make him like, take me out to like, you know, basically see all the airplanes. And we would go like, practically like to the gate of like, you know, all these, uh, you know, different flights at the airport. And like, they allowed you to do that back then, you know? So crazy. <laughs> That's so crazy. It's wild. Isn't, doesn't the Tampa airport have some notable aviation history? Like there's that whole mural, like wasn't there the first flight something something it's was true. to the Tampa airport? The first commercial flight back in the 1910s uh, was run between St. Petersburg where I live and Tampa. Um, it just went across the bay. It was this guy named Tony Janus. It was like the first like daily flight like anywhere in the world. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty in 1910. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. It took five hours <laughs> to go across <laughs> it the probably bay. Probably did. Um, Chris, for what me, is the, wait, what is the most 90s thing for you, Chris? Yeah, again, you know, like in a certain way, it's like we're saying, you know, the whole show has this problem because we talk about what's the most 90s thing. So many of the movies have the legacy of the our, our 80s movies in a lot of ways. And I think this is definitely one that has a lot of 80s movies things to it. Um, yeah. Obviously, it has the sole lineage of John Hughes, where it's taking place in the same, literally in the same place that all of John Hughes movies take place. And it has that same kind of, I think it has that sense of place that was common in a, in a big movie in the 1980s that you don't see anymore. Movies like 
Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, like movies where they felt like you had to start with like a montage of the city where it takes place, you know, and the whole thing is very much like has stuff thrown in that are like make you grounded in, in a location, which I feel like just stopped being important at all. But like, um, what do you think of the most 90s thing? I mean, I mentioned this before, but I do think it's this lineage of like kids movies where you're on the side of the kid and the kid is causing havoc but it's basically a good person it's all those movies i was mentioning before right like blank check man of the house first kid you know camp nowhere blah 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 on and on and on there's like a million of them but i feel like this really set the template for that the sand the sand lot you know like a million of these then that just became like not just movies but like tv shows as as well like every disney family show every abc family show began yeah, that as every well. like you know uh like uh tgif show right it's like yeah. the kids are the stars the kids are the ones who know what's going on really yeah it, and i think this i mean obviously it's not the only thing that set the template for this but it was a very very big part of it yeah i would agree with that and i'm just gonna say that my uh my thing that is the most 90s thing about this movie is the fucking movie. Like, <laughs> it literally... I mean, I know it's the like first year of the decade, but it sets up the entire decade. Yeah, Like, yeah, the definitely. 90s doesn't exist without Home Alone. It's true. You it's, know, so, like, so it's so many, foundational, right? Yeah, exactly. So many movies that we've talked about have been like, oh, well, this is kind of like a leftover of the 80s or... You know, what's 90s about it is this actor who then became famous in the 90s after this movie or something or other. This movie is the 90s. This is the beginning yeah. of the 90s is this movie to me. Like, I, I, I don't think that like the 90s just doesn't pop culturally doesn't exist without Home Alone. And it's in 1990. So it sets up the entire decade. In a lot it's of crazy. Ways. I mean, it's crazy to think of. I mean, we're talking about the influence yeah. over culture, like at the time. But like, yeah, you're right. For the whole decade, for the next 30 years. I mean, we're, we're all just living in the shadow of Home Alone, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it feels like. We are. <laughs> um, so our ne- the next question is, you know, what is this, what is this movie grown out of? Which means... And it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Often what it means is like, what is culture grown out of that this movie was? I'll, uh, I, I will start so that nobody can take this from me. Um, <laughs> and that is the budget, which oh leads to the aesthetic. Yeah. Um, you just cannot make a movie that looks like this anymore. Right. Like it just does not exist. So in a lot of ways, in my opinion, again, I hate to say this, but like, I just don't think culture or movies exist beyond like 2005. It's like, it's like, that was the end. Ricky is under 40 to be clear to everyone. Like (laughs) it ended with, it ended with revenge of the Sith. That was the last great. That was the last piece of culture. The last great blockbuster. I, I, I I might be perfectly honest. You're giving too much credit. It actually ended with revenge of the nerds three. (laughs) <laughs> i mean i know what you mean it's just well this is i mean how many people talk about this like every big director talks like spike lee talks about this a lot like he can't get the budget to make the kind of movie he wants yeah. to make. he just cannot do it yeah um, and because they don't make five they don't make and, and big movies for honest, adults like, you know and like to be perfectly honest this isn't the podcast for it but the five bloods sucked it like wasn't very that, good. It was, honestly was. I mean, it was good, that, you know, but it was like you could see the seams in that so movie. I you was know? excited to watch Spike at like at work. And I was like, 
dear God, this is a director with no money who doesn't oh, know yeah. how to work with no, th- You can tell there's like to, one sequence that he's spent all his money on one sequence and then just the rest of the movie has no money in it at all. Like right. some, you know? people, some directors know how to work with budget. no money. This movie yeah. does not know how to work with no money. No. And it feels like low budget spaghetti thrown. I felt like I was watching a trauma movie directed by Spike <sighs> oh, Lee. Yeah. I mean, and it's so you sad know. because I love, I love Inside Man and I wish he had made a hundred movies oh, like Inside yes. Man, you know? Like, like, do not get me wrong. Like I l- fucking love Spike Lee and I will defend, I'll fight to the death for Spike, you know? But when I'm saying when he blood. makes like a middle of the road commercial movie, like he does it so masterfully if he has a budget to work right yes. like that's like a big real movie and you and it shows you know i mean all the stuff we talk about about these movies it's got a million extras and like the exteriors and like a you know practical things going on whereas like the five bloods has like half it's like the, the inside of a rainforest cafe Dude. is where they shot this fucking movie it you know like i watch really i watch like I, this is like here nor there and tangential but i because of home alone i was like I watched Snoop Dogg's video for Gin and Juice because, like, the opening of Gin and, the Gin and Juice video was inspired by Home Alone, where they're like, we're going to leave you home alone, and then he has a party. Uh, and they're like, you know, it, it was apparently inspired by Home Alone. I was watching that video, and I was like, dear fucking God, this video has a budget for extras that, almost, <laughs> that nearly no movie has anymore. Well, I mean, if you want to get into fucking the way record companies used to spend money in the 1990s, I mean, that's a whole other topic. Like, it's just fucking crazy. Yeah, they spent money like studios spent money because there was money to be fucking made. Exactly, because you could make money selling things, which you apparently can't anymore. Um, Your culture doesn't exist beyond 2005. Yeah, 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 Grandpa. thanks Thanks so much, Napster. Look, I I'm love to get kidding. on TikTok, you know? I'm, like, big <laughs> on the modern stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, grown out of... George I'm gonna Bush go- doesn't, doesn't like black people. <laughs> Ooh. It's like, I love that the other part of that is that Mike Myers is standing there going, like, huh? <laughs> so stupid. And, and, going, um, like, do you like the shag, man. baby? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kanye, do I make you horny? <laughs> Um, yeah, what else has it grown out of? So, I mean, this is a hard one again because it's such a fucking classic. I know, I'm just making a transition. I'm just plowing ahead, dog. Solid you gotta sequitur. Do. Solid sequitur. <laughs> um, hey, so Ricky, good cue. What's it grown out of? Um, I, I, it's a classic, right? Like, I mean, I like you're saying, the way that it's a movie that it doesn't exist anymore, definitely. But like, you know, maybe the way that it has this awful Looney Tunes violence, I feel like definitely you would not have done in the same way today. No. Like, you, you cannot have consequenceless violence anymore in a movie. Like, you know, it, it, this is the argument that people like Quentin Tarantino make is like, violence is more, if it has consequences that are hard to watch, that makes it, realer and not funny to put in a movie you know like it should be disturbing to see these things happen in a movie and that's where we've gotten to as a culture we know there is no way you would watch an adult man step on a nail all the way through his foot and then it would just not come up again you know like he doesn't like he's not bleeding he steps on more fucking broken shit like one minute later and then he's just (laughs) walking around fine a second later you know what i mean it's very like looney tunes it's very itchy and scratchy and like it's just that you can't do that anymore. 
Now, what about you, Christian? What do you think? Yeah, what do you think no, we've grown out of? You know, I think that is extremely true. I think the other thing that even beyond the violence that Kevin McAllister inflicts against the Wet Bandits is the violence that um, Joe Pesci's Harry threatens against Kevin. That He, he literally yes. says at one point, he literally says he's going to cut off his balls and boil them in oil. He says that. <laughs> like, he sort of says it under his breath, but you come can on, definitely Christian, hear it. Come on. I think you're being a little too PC here. Who hasn't said that about a child? <laughs> Christian, have you ever been around a kid? They're so fucking annoying, all right? Oh, like... my God. Every little boy, that every little prepubescent boy I've ever been around, I've immediately oh been God. like, oh, I'm going to boil your balls. Like, if I'm on the subway with an eight-year-old for five minutes, I'm like, I'm going to boil this fucking kid's balls. I can't handle this shit. All I can think about is boiling his balls. <laughs> You gentlemen, you gentlemen aside, that is something that I don't, I don't think would be, you know, well played, just Christian. Best well freely, played. Just yeah. best freely in this cultural climate, let alone put into a movie, a kids movie. And well, then, what, and then well, the along those lines, like at the end, Joe Pesci, he says, "We're going to do to you all the things you did to yes. us." But then the way he says the things to Kevin, they sound horrifying. He's like, "We're yeah. going to burn your head with a blowtorch," and I was like, "Oh my god!" Imagine if they showed that in this movie. And then I was like, "Oh wait, no, that happened." You guys just reminded me of a question that I had about the end of the movie. It's like, Kevin calls the cops, and then like 30 minutes later, the cops show up. Yes. And like, I have to ask a question. Like, I mean, that that is not what I was led to believe about how fast the cops show up in suburban white neighborhoods, according to Public Enemy songs. Right, <laughs> exactly. right. I mean, well, 911 is a joke, Ricky. I mean, what can you say? I, I mean, mean, it's. Just... I, I would assume it's not a joke in that town, but like he calls the cops, then gets in the window and goes across, and then he's waiting in the in the treehouse, and then they fall and hit the, the, the thing, and then he like does something else to them, and then they like do something else, and then he like gets hung up on the door. Well, they're, they're like, going to a different house. They're in a different house in, by then. Yeah, they're yeah. across. Yeah, the house that's, the cop, that they flooded. Then show up later, and it's like, why haven't the cops shown up yet? What's going on? Well, that's interesting. I actually, because that's another case where the cops are really dissed in this movie in general. Because remember, there's that previous yes. scene that we haven't talked about where uh, she calls the police department. Uh, you know, there in Winnetka or whatever. She calls from France, and they're like, "Oh, this is just some hyper lady." Uh, we're not taking this seriously. And then like they kick it over. It's like the family crisis person. He kicks it back over to the initial receptionist or, or dispatcher. And, and then they send someone there to like check on the house. And it's like, there's no one here. Tell, you know, tell her to count her kids again. And that's it. That's like all the cops do in this movie. Yeah. He knocks on the door twice. And then he's like, I don't know. There's nobody fucking here. All right. You know? (laughs) And I was like, that is a pretty realistic depiction of how this would go. I think like in all honesty, uh, the other thing is, you know, he literally threatened <laughs> to. Uh, he literally... Did Ricky fucking die? What happened to you, Ricky? No, I'm here. I was just letting you guys hold the bag for a little uh, bit. Thanks a lot, brother. Why, piece of shit? <laughs> and then with the violence again, he literally says, Joe Pesci literally says that he's going to bite off Kevin McAllister's fingers. Yes, as, as he puts them in his mouth. As he puts them in his mouth. And we should add. That according to Wikipedia, yes, um, Macaulay Culkin still has a scar on his finger from that moment in the movie because <laughs> Joe Pesci actually bit his fucking finger. 
actually Jesus bit him. Jesus Christ, what a fucking <laughs> maniac. That's a fucking child, you know? Like, I, I, I don't know no, if Macaulay Culkin was being a dick on this movie or something, um, but, like, I cannot imagine. You, like, I actors are fucking crazy. Your entire <laughs> life is devoted to having acceptance or, like, you know, uh, being validated by getting a getting home alone or getting a law and order and so therefore once you get it like your competition is a child who is now the star of the set and everybody is pampering more than you so you can't help but get jealous so therefore like his finger shows up and like ah, i'm gonna bite it like it just happens they're fucked up they're fucking weird people like we love them because they're crazier than all of us. That's well, why we, we love, love them. them. We don't love, we love them pretending to be other people. Like, I, you know, a lot, I don't know that you would actually love no. most of the big movie no, stars, no, no, right? No, no, no. Like, what you love about them is that, like, no one, not, very few of them are actually pretending to be other people. What they're doing is elevating their eccentricities and their personality, which yeah. are already existent when they talk, you know? So it's like you go meet Sean Penn and you're like, oh, you're a fucking weirdo. And then it's like he gets on screen and you're like, oh, fucking weirdo, that's cool. Like, <laughs> like that's all that it kind of is. And so therefore, Joe Pesci is like, you know, you meet Joe Pesci or Martin Scorsese meets Joe Pesci and you're like, he's like, this guy's fucking weird and crazy. I'm going to put him on camera. <laughs> and so like they put him and he's him and he's amazing because he's charismatic and crazy and weird. And the camera soaks it up. And then he gets on the Home Alone set and he's like, I'm a big star. This fucking child, what's he doing? Why can't we work into the middle of the night? I want to golf today. Ah, give me your finger, you little shit. <laughs> he scars him. <laughs> That's how movies give, work. Give him, a little, give him a little something to remember me by, you little piece of shit. <laughs> That's how movies work. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, the dude, I think that's it. I think we did it. I think that's it. I think we did it. Yeah. Christian, at the end of the day, you know, you're an adult. You saw this movie when you were young. How do you feel about it as an adult? Would you show it to your child if you had a child? Ooh. At what age would you show it to your child? I think I probably wouldn't show it to my child until maybe they were like six or so, maybe five or six, and and, and skip beyond most of the, the violence at the end. I think, honestly, the rest of it, you could show a child, but the violence, I think I probably would skip beyond a bit. Uh, I genuinely enjoy it just, just as an adult watching it by myself. I, I genuinely enjoy it though. I have to say, and, uh, you would know, you say, though, not to, not to interrupt you, but would you say that part of what you enjoy though, is just like what a movie looks like at this period of time? Oh, most like definitely. A like a half decently made movie at this I mean, time. One thing that we, like. we haven't really mentioned here too much, the extraordinary night cinematography. Oh, yes. my God. Oh my it's God. beautiful. How many yes. movies like Gorgeous. filmed largely at night like this have you seen in recent vintage? I mean, and that oh looked God. this good. I Never. mean, it's extraordinary. That, that scene where he goes to Santa's village and then like Santa's going away in his <laughs> shitty car or something. I mean, it's kind of a dumb scene, but yeah, it's at night. There's the Santa's village. It's got like lights everywhere. And then yeah. Santa's got his shitty car on this perfectly black rain slip street you know and it's, and the whole thing is there's like a crane shot at the end well, of it like, i mean can we be honest there was like a sense of craft at this time where it was like yeah okay well we have one camera that we have to set up for this scene so therefore we have to figure out what each shot is going to be for this scene and how that's going to cut together 
So therefore we have to light accordingly to that. And so we have to figure this out beforehand and then block it out with the actors. That just doesn't seem to happen or at least feel like it happens anymore. It's like, okay, shot, reverse shot, two cameras. Let's get it going. Let's get this done. We've got five more scenes to shoot today. Right. It's about, like we were saying, it's about like events. Like that is what a lot of movies are about. Not even like plot necessarily. It's just about like things happening. It's, and movies just feel like TV, you know, they feel like just content. Content. They feel like, Feels like content. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a bummer, I, dog. Like, I, I will probably bring this movie up until we end up eventually talking about it, which will be three years from now. But like, <laughs> to, a couple nights ago, I watched Judgment Night with Emilio Estevez and uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Stephen Dorff and uh, Jeremy Piven and Dennis Leary. And it is this genre movie from 1994 about a bunch of guys who get stuck in a bad part of town and witness a murder and then get chased by the, by the murderers. But it is like outrageously beautiful in terms of how it is filmed at night. I was shocked. My friend and I who were watching it, we just kept being like, can you believe how gorgeous this is? And this is a that no, that no, nobody talks about from this period of time outside yeah. of the soundtrack. And we couldn't get over it. It wasn't looked at at the time as like a very good movie, right? I mean, it was and unremarkable in a lot of ways at the time. Yeah, but and it's and it's not a, a great movie, but it's also had money to shoot every scene with craft, right? Yeah. So like, sure, it doesn't have like a particular voice or like a a, a Fincher esque, you know, uh, misanthropy misanthropic edge to it that that you know lingers throughout the oeuvre of the entire film of the filmmaker's career, but within the context of this moment, we're watching this movie and being like, I cannot believe that this was a genre movie that existed at one point. This is like a Carpenter movie with 10 million more dollars than Carpenter would have gotten. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And it's just like movies just like don't exist like that anymore. And home alone kind of feels like that. If you showed me a children's movie that was made right now, it would probably be for Netflix. And I would I, I don't think I would be able to watch it. I would be like, shut this off. I, I can't do this. It feels like a drill going into my brain. Yeah. Whereas like yeah. Home Alone, <laughs> Home Alone doesn't feel like that. It feels- It's beautiful. It's moving. Yeah. It yeah. Rewarding for both adults and children. Like sure, I could pick it apart and be like, oh, the end is so violent. And I don't like that. Or, you know, this seems shallow, but it's enjoyable to watch because it's a fucking movie. It Most is definitely. still a movie. And it like, is. That, like, name me a children's movie that feels like that at this point. Oof. I mean, I don't know. I guess, like, Harry Potter, like, the good Harry Pixar Potter movies. movies. Pixar, yeah. Pixar movies. Pixar movies, yeah. Yeah, Pixar movies. But then I don't even think those are that great anymore, Pixar movies. I mean, they, I think they have gotten progressively worse. I would love it if they did a great new Pixar. I mean, did you see Toy Story 4? <laughs> you know, like, wasn't very good. I didn't think it was very good. I like yeah. Inside Out. Yeah, but Inside Out was like seven years ago. Was it? How I think old it was five. I? I think it was 2015. But still, <laughs> it was a while ago now. I'm looking yeah, this up. Was, and yeah, five years ago. Five years ago. You're right. That I think ago. was their last really great one. Yeah. Okay, so Home Alone, 1990, one of the biggest movies of the year. The one of the biggest movies of the '90s, I think, one of the movies that defined the '90s and children's movies and family movies of the '90s and beyond. Um, you know, I, I again, like most movies of this time, 
it kind of holds up just because it was afforded the luxury of being able to be made as a movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Christian, um, I have to say uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been uh, wonderful to have you here. I've been drunk the whole time. I hope that wasn't obvious. <laughs> you know, it was only a little bit. It wasn't only a that bit. much. It wasn't that much. Thank you.